For most of us, we associate meekness with weakness. When we hear the word meek, we visualize that mild-mannered, soft-spoken individual who never gets his tail feathers ruffled. When we hear the word meek, we think of that overweight third grader who is isolated in the cafeteria, ignored on the playground simply because he doesn't look and act like other boys his age. When we hear the word meek, we begin to contemplate the teenage girl who is socially awkward yet desperately wants a large group of friends, but it seems that no one gives her the time of day. When we think of meek, we begin to draw on the screen of our minds that remembrance of that co-worker who just has a quirky disposition and a quiet demeanor. The reason we do this is because in our culture, meekness is associated with weakness. So that our culture values those who are confident, those who are charismatic, those who bully their way to the front of the line in a boisterous fashion so that everyone can watch them in the world. And yet this morning, we are confronted once again with the words of Jesus, words that cause us to stop dead in our tracks, for it's as if the Savior asks us, who are you and what do you value? Once again, today we examine the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever lived. We find ourselves at the third beatitude of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. It's to that passage. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and thank you for every sacred sentence in Scripture. We thank you that even a single word, a collection of words in a sentence can portray a powerful image. So Lord, help me to preach. Open our minds so that we may think, open our eyes so that we may see, open our hearts so that we, we may respond in obedience unto you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You do realize that words are far more than a collection of letters. Words paint pictures. For if I were to say to you, let us consider a tree. I promise that very few of you, if any of you, think in the blank screen of your mind the letters T-R-E-E. -E. We don't think in letters. We think in pictures. So when asked to consider a tree, you begin to visualize that apple tree that stood in the backyard of your grandparents' house. And when you went to go visit them, you would climb that tree and that tree would serve as the fortress of your make-believe. Because when we speak words, we're not just speaking a collection of letters, because words convey a picture. If that's true, then Jesus is a master artist. He has the ability with a few brief words to paint beautiful pictures on the canvas of our minds. 
Take, for example, the Beatitudes, which we've been studying over the last several weeks. Jesus began with that powerful image that entrance into the kingdom of God is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That if you and I are going to get into God's kingdom, if you and I are going to be accepted in God's sight, we must come to him as a spiritual beggar. As the beggar was lining the street on bended knee, head downcast, eyes closed, arms outstretched, palms open heavenward, simply begging for existence, Jesus says that is the posture in which you and I come before God. For when it comes to our salvation, we cannot barter with him. We cannot negotiate any good deed as if somehow we have merited our own standing before the Lord. So Jesus paints a beautiful picture. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then last week, Jesus painted another picture. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Jesus is not saying blessed are the crybabies. He's not saying blessed are people who just cry at a casket. He's not saying blessed are people who just grieve at a funeral. He's not saying blessed are people who know how to throw a temper tantrum in order to get their way so that other people will acquiesce to their desires. No, Jesus says blessed is the person who has godly grief over sin. The word mourn literally means godly grief. It means that there is a perpetual sadness in the life of the believer because you and I ought to outgrow our sin, but we just don't. And so because of that, we respond in sadness and godly sorrow that brings about repentance and leads us unto salvation. Jesus paints beautiful pictures. We come to the third beatitude. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Whatever Jesus means by that, he is not associating meekness with weakness. The word meek literally means uh, to be mild. Uh, It means gentle, soft, meek. It conjures up images. These images convey an idea. The image of being meek is the image of soothing medicine, a cool, soft breeze a tamed horse. Now all of those images convey an idea. The idea is that meekness is power under control. It is strength that is harnessed for service. That's what meekness means. It means that you have strength, but it's harnessed for service. It means that you have power, but it's under control of something or someone. Medicine can do a lot of good. It can make the sick person well. But if it is administered out of control, then a high dosage of medicine can end in fatality. So medicine that's good is medicine that's under control. The same thing can be said about a gentle wind. For how refreshing is it when you're under a sweltering heat of a southern Alabama summer and a cool breeze begins to blow and you think to yourself, oh, how refreshing. But if that wind gets out of control, then a tornado can come through our town. It can leave all of life's accumulations and possessions in a pile of rubble in a matter of seconds. So wind is good so long as it's under control. The same thing can be said of a horse. If you have a wild, unbroken horse, then it doesn't matter how skilled the rider is because that rider won't tell that horse what to do or where to go. But if that horse's spirit's been broken, if he has been tamed 
than an 80-pound, 10-year-old girl can sit on top of that 2,000-pound beast of burden and she can tell the horse where to go and how fast to get there because the horse is under control. Jesus says this is what it means to live the meek life. It has nothing to do with weakness. It's everything about power under control. It is strength that is harnessed for service. And Jesus says, if you're going to enter God's kingdom, if you're going to live the good life, if you are going to be a follower of Christ, then you must be a meek individual. For us, a good working definition of meekness will be this. It is a life that is completely surrendered to God's control. That's what it means to be meek. A life that is completely surrendered to God's control. You and I know individuals who are partially committed to Christ, right? We know people who are not committed to Christ. They are literally out of control. We know other individuals who have partially submitted themselves unto the Lord, but there's an aspect of their living that's out of bounds. It's out of control. If you have a mind that's out of control, you'll make hasty decisions that will bring about destruction in your life. If you have emotions that are out of control, you will fly into a fit of rage and anger at the drop of a hat. If you have language that's out of control, you will launch into a verbal tirade, dispelling barbed-wired words that puncture the very pride of another individual, causing a wound that takes a lifetime to heal. If your appetite's out of control, that can lead to obesity. If your sexual pleasure is out of control, that can lead to a host of promiscuity and adultery. We all know individuals who are partially out of control, and whenever you're out of control, it always leads to destructive habits. So Jesus says, blessed is the person who is meek. What does that mean? It means blessed is the individual whose life is completely surrendered to God's control. You want to have the good life? That's what the good life is. You are fully surrendered unto God. He is in charge of your life. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says. Now today I want to give you a couple of practical points of application when it comes to meekness. And the first one is this, that the meek life extends forgiveness instead of revenge. Can we be real honest this morning? There are things that have happened to you, things that have been said to you or about you. And having feelings of retaliation Humanly speaking, seems quite reasonable. Can we just be honest? I mean, there are things that have been done to you. There are things been done to me. There are things been said to you. There are things been said to me. There are things that have happened in our life. And, and, and the response of, of desiring revenge, it seems quite reasonable. And I can't blame you. I can't blame you if you want to retaliate. I can't blame you if you long to nurse a grudge. I can't blame you if you harbor bitterness and resentment. After all, if what happened to me happened to you, if I was in your same sandals, I bet I would respond in the very same way. You can well imagine that as a pastor, I, I hear a host of stories, many of which would cause your nose hairs to curl. 
I mean, they are vile stories. And when somebody tells me some of those stories and they respond with anger, frustration, resentment, and bitterness, I say to myself, I don't blame you. I understand that. For if what you just described happened to you would happen to me, I would wish to retaliate in the very same way. But the meek life extends forgiveness instead of retaliation. It extends forgiveness instead of revenge. Some of you remember the story of Joseph. Joseph is that Old Testament character. And if anybody had a reason to retaliate, it was Joseph. Now, Joseph was not perfect. He was a punk. He was an arrogant 17-year-old brat. He was the youngster of his family, and his 10 older brothers hated his guts. The reason they hated him was because Daddy Jacob doted on Joseph. He gave Joseph an early retirement plan. He gave him that blasted coat of many colors. Really what that meant was that, Joseph, you can have the life of ease because the jacket went all the way down to your wrist and all the way down to your feet. That's not the attire of a hardworking farmer. So, Joseph, you just sit back and you can have an early retirement plan at the ripe old age of 17. You can well imagine that this caused the older brothers to be resentful towards Joseph. So they took him into the field and they threw him into a pit or a cistern. They decided it would be a good idea if they sold their little brother to some traveling band of Midianites. The going rate was 20 shekels of silver. And so those brothers, who weren't the smartest guys uh, on the farm, they realized that 20 shekels divided by 10, two shekels apiece, that sounds pretty good. We can do a lot on Friday night with two shekels of silver. And so we'll do that. And they sold their brother into slavery. They went back home. After dipping that coat in the blood of an animal, they said to their father, Jacob, Daddy, we're sorry to report, but your beloved son Joseph has died. He was attacked by ferocious animals. Here's the coat and there's the blood. We are so sorry. We're told that Jacob grieved over the reported death of his son. Now, unbeknownst to anyone so far in the story, what they don't realize is that Joseph was taken down to Egypt and there he was sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was a pretty influential guy, and God's favor was upon Joseph, and Potiphar could see that. So Potiphar placed Joseph head of all the servants in the house and in the field. Now also, Mrs. Potiphar took a notice of Joseph. Joseph was handsome and well-built, the scripture says. And one day, Mrs. Potiphar dismissed all of the other servants She seductively walked up to Joseph, pressed herself up against him, and said in a rather forthright way, come to bed with me. Now, when we hear that, we should never visualize that Miss Potiphar is a a fat, smelly woman with a wart on the end of her nose. No, she's probably a knockout. She's probably kept herself. She probably goes to the gym five times a week. She probably owns her own line of Mary Kay. I mean, she probably looks great. And Joseph is a young, strapping, red-blooded man. And so he's there. And the only thing he knows what to do is that he just runs. He runs with such force that he comes straight out of his shirt. And Mrs. Potiphar is there clutching the cloak of Joseph. I think this is exactly what Paul has in mind when he says to those Corinthians, flee sexual immorality. Oh, my friends, let me tell you that for sin in general, for sexual sin in particular, when you find yourself in sin's clutches, flee. 
Run as fast as you can. Don't flirt with it. Don't be uh, enamored with it. Don't dabble in it, but run. Run as fast as you can. That's what Joseph did. He bolted. He ran as fast as his legs would carry him. And you can well imagine that Mrs. Potiphar was filled with shame, and so she was standing there embarrassed, holding the shirt of Joseph, and she began to scream. When she screamed, the other servants rushed in. Later that night, she told the same sob story to her husband, Mr. Potiphar. She said, that Israelite that you purchased as a slave, he made an advancement against me today. And I grabbed his shirt and I screamed. And when he heard me scream, he ran out. And Potiphar responded like any husband. He believed his wife. And so, because of his power, because of his might, he threw Joseph in jail. Joseph went to jail on trumped-up charges of rape. Joseph was there for years. He had a knack of being able to accurately interpret dreams. He interpreted the dream of the baker. He also interpreted the dream of the cupbearer. When the cupbearer was exonerated, uh, as he was leaving the prison, Joseph said to him, hey, when you get into Pharaoh's court, don't forget me. And the cupbearer said, how could I ever forget you? It's because of you that I'm exonerated. There's no way I won't forget you. He goes into the Pharaoh's court. He absolutely forgets Joseph. Joseph stays in prison two more years. Why? He didn't do anything wrong. He did everything right. And he's wasting away in prison. Well, eventually, Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret it has something to do with fat cows and skinny cows, and the skinny cows eat the fat cows. And when the skinny cows eat the fat cows, the skinny cows don't gain an ounce. And Pharaoh doesn't know what it means, and none of his wise advisors know what it means. And finally, the cupbearer says, oh, yeah, by the way, if he's still alive, there's a guy in prison, and he's got a knack of being able to accurately interpret dreams. Why don't you call him? His name is Joseph. He's from Israel. So Pharaoh called for Joseph. Joseph came, and he accurately interpreted the dreams. He said, well, Pharaoh... Uh, let me tell you what's going to happen. The seven fat cows, that represents seven fat years of prosperity. But following seven years of prosperity, there will be seven years of famine. Those are the seven sleek, skinny, scrawny cows. They will come up and the famine will be so severe, it will devour any prosperity that came from the first seven years. So my suggestion to you is during this first seven years to gather the grain from the people so that when the seven years of famine come that will cripple the national, national economies of those even surrounding Egypt, when that strikes, you'll be the only one with grain and the whole world will come to you needing to purchase food. Pharaoh said, wow, that boy's good. Okay, uh, I, you be in charge of that program. Joseph said, okay. God's favor was so upon him that after those seven years, Joseph rose in rank. He was second in command over all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh outranked him. When the seven years of famine struck, it was severe. Nation after nation was crippled. Word got back even all the way to Israel that Egypt had grain. So guess who came calling? Jacob sent those Ten, a little bit older, rowdy rednecks, and said, boys, I need you to go down to, uh, to Egypt, and I need you to get us some grain. We're starving to death here. So they make their way back down. They go into the presence of Joseph, and they have no clue who they're standing in front of. 
They see a highly cultured, well-defined, well-refined individual. They know it's the prince of Egypt. They know it's the second in command over all of Egypt, but they don't have a clue who the actual person is. In their minds, Joseph was dead. He had been killed 20 years ago. But Joseph, Joseph knew exactly who those 10 rednecks were. He could tell by the way they talked. He could tell by the way they walked. He could tell by their clothing. He could tell by the way they were jabbing at each other. 20 years had come and gone, but these brothers were still treating each other the very same way. And the scripture says he could tell by even the language of their mouth. In other words, he could tell by their accent. You know, people have an accent and you can tell where someone's from by their accent. Well, that's exactly what happens. These guys come in and because of how they speak, Joseph says, these are my brothers. He's overwhelmed, overcome with emotion. Now keep in mind that Joseph is in a position where he can extend revenge. He could deny them grain. He could throw them into prison for years. He could kill them on the spot. And no one would question the second in command over all of Egypt. For most of us, we die for this scenario. Somebody's wronged us, somebody's hurt us, somebody said something bad about us, somebody did something to us, and we think to ourselves, oh, if I ever got a chance when they were crawling at my feet and I was in a position where I could do something and get away with it, oh, if I could have this moment, this is what I would do. Joseph's in that moment. He can do anything he wants to do, and no one's going to question him. No one's going to stop him. And Joseph is overcome with meekness. He reveals his identity. And those 10 brothers are scared out of their boots. You bet your bottom dollar they're scared out of their boots. And Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, don't be afraid. You intended it for harm. But God intended it for good. For the saving of many lives. I don't know about you, church, but when I come to that two-word divine conjunction, I get excited. But God. That's a game changer. It really is. It changes everything. It changes perspective. It changes outlook. It changes how you live. But God. Now, I'm not trying to be crude in what I'm about to say. I'm just trying to state a fact. I don't know about you, but I love the big buts of the Bible. I love them. And when you get to Genesis chapter 50, there is a big but. You intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. That's not the only big but of the Bible, but we also find one in Psalm chapter uh, 73. For in Psalm 73, we are told that my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. I don't know about you, but that's a big but that changes everything. And not just there, but you come to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, it's the apostle Peter who is preaching to the crowd. And he said, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. I don't know about you, but that's a big but. That's a game changer. You and I come to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And it's there that the apostle Paul says, perhaps... 
Someone might die for a righteous person or a godly person, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know about you, but that's a big but. And then you get to the biggest but of them all in all the Bible. You get to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, when Paul says, we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but I love the big buts of the Bible. I love that two-word divine conjunction, but God. Because you will want to enact revenge until you remember, but God. It's a game changer. It changes everything so that you extend forgiveness instead of revenge. Is there anyone this morning that you need to forgive? We are not debating whether or not you should be upset. Let me just put it on the table. You should be upset. I mean, I don't know the particulars, but if, it, if it's anything like what I've heard before, and there's nothing new under the sun, whatever's been done to you, you deserve to be upset. I understand that. I'm with you. If I was in your shoes, I too would probably be upset. But meekness is a life completely surrendered to the control of God. And the meek life says, I will extend forgiveness instead of revenge. Is there anyone in your life that you need to forgive? Let me tell you something. It was Philip Yancey who said, forgiveness is learning how to set the prisoner free only to discover that you were the prisoner. Because there are times that we think if we hold on to bitterness, that will hurt the other person. No, it won't. It will only hurt you. It will destroy you from the inside out. Forgiveness is as much for you as it is for the other person. So forgiveness is learning how to set the prisoner free and then to discover that you are the prisoner. Meekness says, I will extend forgiveness instead of revenge. But secondly, the meek life keeps a shut mouth and an open heart now this is hard keeps a shut mouth and an open heart one of the meekest men of the bible is a guy by the name of moses moses wasn't always meek but in numbers chapter 12 verse 3 we are told that moses was a humble man that word humble means meek mild hum, uh, moses was a meek man for he was one of the most, he was one of the meekest men on the face of the earth. What's so ironic about that is where it's placed in the story. Because in Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, there's Miriam and Aaron. And they're complaining against Moses. Moses, can't God talk to us? Are you the only one that God has talked through? Has not God talked to us? Let us talk to the people. Why do you have to be the spokesman to the people of Israel? I don't know about you, but I always feel sorry for Moses. He's trying to lead and everybody is... Everybody is chirping. Everybody's complaining. Everybody's barking, including his, those who are flanking him on the right and on his left, Aaron and Miriam. And so verses 1 and 2, Miriam and Aaron just launch into Moses. In verse 3, you expect Moses to retaliate. Instead, there's a parenthetical statement that says, Moses is a meek man. End of statement. 
Then you get to verse 4, and the next words are, the Lord spoke, saying, Moses, Miriam, Aaron, come out, come here. If this was grade school, Moses would go, uh-uh, you about to get in trouble. But Moses doesn't say anything. He keeps a shut mouth. In verses 4 and following of Numbers chapter 12, it is God who vindicates Moses and shames Miriam and Aaron. God does it. Why? Because Moses kept his mouth shut. He kept a shut mouth and an open heart. We expect Moses to nail them to the wall. We expect him to lash out in barbed wire words. We expect Moses to retaliate. If he had, we would have applauded him for great leadership. Way to go, Moses, because you can't stand for insubordination. Way to go. You can't stand for anybody to be disloyal to you. Way to go, Moses. But Moses doesn't say anything. He keeps a shut mouth and an open heart. My friend, if you are meek in the sight of God, you'll learn the value that there are times you don't have to say everything you think. Let me rephrase that. Let me restate that. There are times you don't have to say everything that you think. There are times when you have, when you're living life completely surrendered to God's control, that you keep a shut mouth an open heart. You know, if we did this, our marriages would be better. If we did this, our parenting would be better. If we did this, the workplace environment would be far more effective. If we did this, churches would be more biblical. You and I are called to have a meek life. What does that practically mean? It means we extend forgiveness instead of revenge. And it means there are times when we have a shut mouth and an open heart. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I understand that Jesus could be giving us an eschatological promise that at the end of time when Jesus comes and establishes his reign on earth for some thousand years, that we who are in Christ will rule and reign with him. And so maybe what Jesus is saying is, you just hang on because the end is coming. And when the end comes, we'll set up shop right here on earth. I guess he could be saying that. But I think he's saying more than that. Because I think that he is quoting David from Psalm 37. In Psalm 37, David is trying to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? You've heard it phrased, why do good things happen to bad people? Well, David flips the script. And David says, but why do bad things happen to the righteous? Why do the righteous suffer? And through it, uh, David says on a couple of occasions, do not fret, do not fret. You know what the word fret means? Fret was the image of that desert shrub that would bust into flames because of the sweltering sun. And that bush would blaze and blaze and blaze and blaze and blaze for a few seconds and then die out. And David says, don't be like that. You've met people like that shrub, haven't you? And injustice is stated, something is inappropriate that's done or said, and they blaze, 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 blaze for a few seconds and then they die down. And they fret. And what David is saying is don't fret, don't fret. Instead, delight yourself in the Lord. 
He will give you the desires of your heart. Instead, commit your ways unto the Lord and they will prosper. Instead, be still and know that I am God. Eventually, when you get to the end of the the first stanza of Psalm 37, verse 11, David says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the land and experience great peace. Because when your life is under the control of God, that then and only then do you have peace. Peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with fellow man. Now once again, our ultimate example of what it is to be meek, it's not Joseph, it's, it's not Moses, it's not even David. Our example is Jesus. Jesus rode into Jerusalem the very last time of his life. And the gospel writers tell us he rode on a gentle donkey. Don't miss that imagery. The king of kings and lord of lords comes in in a very meek fashion, but don't mistake meekness for weakness. Because the very next thing Jesus does is he goes and he gets ballistic in the temple. He goes and in brute strength, he overturns all of the money changers. He forms a whip out of course. He drives out the merchants and the crooks, even the doves and the cattle. All of them are gone. And Jesus declares, this is the house of prayer and you have transformed it into the den of robbers. And Jesus goes Superman on these guys. And the disciples must have said, I'm with him. Yeah, I'm with him. He's meek, but that doesn't mean weak because he was fully surrendered to God's control. Jesus prays at the end of the week. and He says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus goes to the cross. He is bruised and he doesn't speak a word. People hurl insults at him, and he does not retaliate. He speaks a few words while he's hanging there on the cross, one of them being, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus personifies meekness. He extends forgiveness instead of revenge. There are times that he kept a shut mouth and allowed God to vindicate him. And that vindication did not fully come on Friday, nor did it fully come on Saturday. But it fully came early on Sunday morning when God the Father raised God the Son from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, Jesus robbed the grave of victory. And Jesus robbed death of its power. And Jesus robbed hell of of any of its influence so that the name of Jesus is exalted above any name that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we follow Christ, if we identify ourselves as Jesus' followers, Jesus says, you will follow me in meekness. That's not associated with weakness. To have a meek life is to live life that is completely surrendered to God's control. So this morning, is there anything in your life that's out of bounds? Is there anything in your life that's out of control? Is there any aspect of your thinking, of your actions, of your attitude, of your words? Is there anything in your life that is out of control? Jesus says, you follow me, you want the good life? You follow me, and it'll be strength harnessed for service. You follow me, and it'll be power under control. Jesus says, if you find yourself out of bounds, if you find yourself out of control, You come, for blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we give you this invitation. 
Oh, Father, we pray that as your spirit convicts us of sin, maybe it, maybe it is that we fret, maybe we can just combust with the best of them. We never walk away from a verbal assault. We give it right back. Oh, Lord, maybe we long to put people in their place. Maybe we long to write them off or tell them off. Oh, Lord, maybe there's an aspect of our life, our living, that is clearly out of bounds from your word. Lord, today I pray that before any person leaves this house, that they will be fully surrendered under God's control. Help us, Lord, to be meek. In Jesus' name, amen.